It was one of those weeks where I kept expecting to get better and better and better and praying that I would be well enough to come tonight. So I didn't have to call at the very last moment to tell you that uh, I was too sick to come. So I'm, I'm feeling better. I uh, appreciate the good sound system here and I will uh, lean in so that you can hear hopefully what I have to say. And hopefully I won't get a severe coughing fit in the middle. Uh, a couple things before we start. I understand that the um, Strattons were at Phoenix today and they were very much in their ministry, it was very much appreciated. I will tell you that the assembly at the Palms, which is Palms Olive Fellowship in Phoenix, has greatly appreciated the encouragement that they've received from this group here. That it has been a great encouragement to them and I hopefully an encouragement to those who have been able to go over there to help or to attend or to teach. And I know the saints there have been greatly encouraged by those who have come and your willingness to make that sacrifice to make that drive. And then the second point is just a reminder that the Buena Park will be holding their Marietta Conference. And I know it's the same time as Believers, so if you're not going to the Believers Conference and you want to go somewhere, as Joshua mentioned last week, his best thing that he thought about was it was free. I think there's other good things about it, but uh, that is one of the nice things is to stay in the resort with the hot tubs and to stay in a room and, and to have the fellowship and the meals and things like that. But the, 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 the price is um, a selling point, I guess you would say, besides the other things. And so I did bring water. I would never go anywhere without water. Just in case I might spill it. Yes. 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 And, and um, having said that, that brings us right to our subject for tonight. And I appreciate your introduction, David, because that leads us right into that. And, it's, and what we're going to talk about tonight is criticism. Criticism. So, as some of you know, in every assembly, there seems to be someone who has that special gift of criticism. And unfortunately, the Bible takes a certain view of criticism, and it's important for us to understand that view. And then I want to look at what the Bible has to say about criticism, and then I want to look at how we should respond to criticism, how we should respond to criticism. Now, you might at this point tell me that well, the Bible says iron sharpens iron. And I will tell you that iron sharpens iron, but it doesn't sharpen iron three times removed. So if you're not willing to go to the person that you feel there's improvement needed, and you go to someone else about that, you're not sharpening iron. In fact, the Bible calls that gossip and slander and other things. So if you're not willing to go directly to the person to criticize them, then you're failing in the very first step. But even if you're willing to go directly to them, there's some things that God has to say about criticism, and we can look at a number of different places. If you're interested in studying the subject of criticism, you can look at Nehemiah. Nehemiah was a man who was highly criticized, and the truth of the matter is anytime you get out in front, anytime you're going to be a leader, anytime you're going to stand up and make a decision, anytime you're being given a responsibility or an authority to go with that responsibility, whether it's running the nursery, running the kitchen, and it could be almost anything, there are going to be some 
who are able to find fault or see areas of improvement. And so the Bible warns us, though, that in Galatians 5.15 it says, but if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed with one another. And so the problem is, is there has to be a spirit of criticism, and there has to be an emotive with criticism. You could go to Matthew 7 and see that if you don't remove the beam out of your own eye, you'd never be able to remove the splinter out of your, other, out of your brother's eyes. So if you've got an issue, and I think it's true in life, that when we have an issue that's bothering us, we often see that as a motivation for others. And let's look at a couple passages. But first, let's look at Deuteronomy 8. Turn to Deuteronomy 8, and we're going to look at Deuteronomy 8, and then we're going to look at two examples from the Old Testament regarding criticism, and then we'll spend some time looking at how to handle or deal with criticism when you're the subject of that criticism. Deuteronomy 8 and verse 1. All the commandments which I command thee this day shall ye observe to do, that ye may live and multiply and go in and possess the land which the Lord sware unto your fathers. And thou shalt remember all the way which the Lord thy God led thee these forty years in the wilderness to humble thee and to prove thee to know what was in thine heart, whether thou wouldest keep his commandments or no. And he humbled thee and suffered thee to hunger and fed thee with manna, which thou knewest not, neither did thy fathers know, that he might make thee know that man doth not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord doth man live. And there's a couple things here that I would like to be reminded of. Criticism often comes from carnality and selfishness, and it particularly comes when there's any type of suffering or any type of a breakdown. And during the wilderness experience, the children of Israel constantly murmured. And so every time they were something they didn't quite like the way it was, they murmured. And God judged them for that, as we know. And then God brings trials into our lives, and often instead of accepting those trials, we look for someone to blame or take responsibility for our difficulties. And so one of the things we have to be really careful before we criticize is that we're just not criticizing because we don't like the way things are right now or we don't like the way things are going, or we, or we perceive that things could be better, and often it's from a selfish mode. It's often looking at ourselves and saying, if they would only do it this way, my life would be better. And if you're criticizing for that, then you're criticizing for a selfish motive. So let's look at a couple of these. Numbers 12, if you would. And both of these examples involve the same man. But each of them involve different individuals doing the criticism. I want to read Numbers 12, 1 through 13. And Miriam and Aaron spake against Moses because of the Ethiopian woman whom he had married, for he had married an Ethiopian woman. And they said, Hath the Lord indeed spoken only by Moses? Hath he not spoken also by us? And the Lord heard it. Now the man Moses was very meek above all the men which were upon the face of the earth. And the Lord spake suddenly unto Moses and said unto Aaron and unto Miriam, Come out ye three unto the tabernacle of the congregation. And they three came out. 
And the Lord came down the pillar of the cloud and stood in the door of the tabernacle and called Aaron and Miriam, and they both came forth. And he said, Hear now my words. If there be a prophet among you, I, the Lord, will make myself known unto him in a vision and will speak unto him in a dream. My servant Moses is not so, who is faithful in all mine house. With him will I speak mouth to mouth, even apparently, and not in dark speeches, and solemnitudes of the Lord shall he behold. Wherefore, then what, where were ye not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? And the anger of the Lord was kindled against him, and he departed. And the cloud departed from off the tabernacle, and behold, Miriam became leprous, white as snow. And Aaron looked upon Miriam, and beheld she was leprous. And Aaron said unto Moses, Alas, my Lord, I beseech thee, lay not the sin upon us, wherein we have done foolishly, and wherein we have sinned. Let her not be as one dead, of whom the flesh is half consumed when he cometh out of the mother's womb. And Moses cried unto the Lord, saying, Heal her now, O God, I beseech ye. So one of the lessons we want to look at here and notice is that criticism comes from those, often comes from those who are closest to you, who are closest to you, people you would least expect, people you think would be supporting of you and helping you in the endeavor and struggling along with you to pull their weight, and that's often the people who would criticize you. And you see here, it's Moses' brother and his sister. Aaron was a high priest, and yet these two come and, and then notice the second thing. Often the real reason for the criticism is often concealed. They come forward and say it's because of who he married. Because of who he married. But then we find out that that's not true at all because in verse 2 it says, And hath the Lord indeed spoken only by Moses. The criticism is, is he God's mouthpiece? What about us? Miriam could recount after the crossing of the, of the Red Sea how she led the congregation in worship. She had an important place. People looked up to her. And so there's a pettiness and a jealousy here that they saw as Moses having an undeserved position. Who gave you that position? Did God alone appoint you? Why, what about us? And so you see jealousies underneath the, the, the current here of why there's criticism. And then if you'll notice that criticism loves to be supported. And so you go and you find someone else who would agree with you. It doesn't seem like Aaron was the aggressor here. It might have been Miriam. We're not really told. But since Miriam was punished in the way she was punished, I'm going to assume that it was Miriam who started this and went to Aaron for support. Don't you think that he's sort of getting ahead of himself? Don't you think he's taking more authority on himself than he should? Doesn't, you know, and, and notice what God immediately says. Now, the, in verse 3, now the man Moses was very meek above all the men which were upon the face of the earth. It's really easy to criticize a meek person because they're probably not going to respond. And they're probably going to take it. And they're probably going to have real thoughts about whether this is right or whether this is wrong. And so we see here that as soon as God responds to them, they recognize that it's sin. 
don't know that they recognize it's sin. But what we get in this story is a very clear presentation that God considers criticism from jealousy to be sin. Think about that. That God considers criticism from jealousy to be sin. So I have to ask myself that question then, is when I'm going to criticize someone, is it because I'm jealous of them? Am I jealous of their position? Am I jealousy of, of the responsibility I have? Is it something I want that they have? And in this case, it would clearly seem that Miriam wanted something that Moses had. And God punishes her for it. Punishes her. I mean, if you understand leprosy in the scriptures, it meant she would have been an outcast for the rest of her time. Going from being wanting to be a leader and being right there with Moses to being an outcast where you couldn't even be anywhere near the people. I mean, that's a huge... And yet it's Moses who cries unto the Lord and beseeches the Lord for her. So think about that. And then if you would, turn over to number 16. I'll read the story of Korah. Number 16 in verse 1. Now Korah, the son of Ishar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi, and Dathan, and Abram, and the sons of Elab, and On, the son of Peleth, the son of Reuben, took men. And they rose up before Moses with certain of the children of Israel, 250 princes of the assembly, famous in the congregation, men of renown. One thing, if you're going to criticize someone, you want a good group to support you. And as with Aaron and, and Miriam, you gather people around you. You tell them what the criticism is. You tell them what the problems is. And these are men who should have known better, it would seem, because they were men of renown. And you gather them together. And when you feel really good because you have all these people sort of agree with this criticism you're about ready to lay on Moses, you approach Moses. And they gathered themselves, verse 3, and they gathered themselves together against Moses, against Aaron, and said unto them, You take too much upon you, seeing all the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord among them. Wherefore, then lift up yourselves above the congregation of the Lord. And so we come back almost to the same accusation that Aaron and Miriam made against Moses. You're lifting yourself up. You have an issue with pride. When you're going to stand in front, when you're going to stand up and speak or teach, when you're going to set yourself as an example, that's going to be an attack that comes all the time. You're a man of pride. You have arrogance. You, don't want, you wouldn't want to be an elder unless you were sort of arrogant anyway. A true servant wouldn't need the position. There's a lot of criticism and attacks like that that come forward, and this is the type of attack that, that Moses is under. And here's the issue with Korah. The issue with Korah is God's order. God is an orderly God, and God has an order. And God's order in our society particularly is constantly coming under attack. But it shouldn't surprise us because God's order came under his attack here in the wilderness by Korah. And he wasn't alone. And the idea is, is that we are Levites. 
And Levites had wonderful responsibilities. And they were servants who took care of the golden vessels, and they took care of transporting the tabernacle, and they took care of everything like that. But they point to Aaron and said, we're holy too. Why can't we be the high priests? Why can't we take the sacrifices in? Why can't we take the blood in before the veil? We're just as good as you. We're just as important as you. Well, when we come to New Testament times, that's true of all of us. We're all equal before Christ. But God has an order, and he's placed in that order. And he's placed in the order of his church certain things. And we come to 1 Corinthians 11, we read that, that there's what? That the head of Christ is God. They're absolutely equal because they're both absolutely God. And yet God has an order. But we come to the day where some people say, well, wait, does God really have an order? Aren't we all equal? And we see that being played out here with Kor as he comes up to Moses and he goes, well, aren't we all equal? Aren't we all holy? Shouldn't we all be able to do whatever task needs to be done? Why, who made Aaron special? I'll tell you who made Aaron special. God made Aaron special. And notice how many people he gathers together. 250. He knew this wasn't going to be an easy task. He probably figured someone would resist it. So he made sure he had a really good group behind him. And I want to tell you that criticism supported by numbers doesn't make it right. I'd like to say, well, we've polled everybody and everybody agrees with us. I mean, if you're a leader, you'll hear that sooner or later. We've talked to a lot of people and they all agree with us. You're doing this wrong. Well, if you've talked to a lot of people before you've talked to the leaders, you've obviously made a mistake. Because what you've done is exactly what Cora did. You've sought recruits to support you in what you desired and what you wanted. Let's go on. And when Moses heard, he fell upon his face. You know, it's tough to take criticism. And if you're a meek servant leader, when you're approached in this way, it's going to bother you a lot. Even as I believe Moses knew that it was God who had commanded that Aaron and his sons be the priest and that a high priest be descendant from Aaron, it still bothered him. And so he falls on his face. Verse 5, and he spake unto Korah and unto all his company, saying, Even tomorrow the Lord will show who are his and who is holy and will cause him to come near unto him, even him whom he hath chosen will he cause to come near unto him. And so Moses said, we'll let God decide. We'll let God make that determination. Now notice his meekness that he doesn't defend himself. We're going to get into that later, but notice his meekness. He doesn't defend himself. He doesn't defend Aaron being high priest. He just says, we'll let God decide. This do, take your censers, Korah, and all his company, and put fire therein and incense, and put incense in them before the Lord tomorrow, and it shall be that man whom the Lord doth choose. He shall be holy. You take too much upon you, you sons of Levi. You want to challenge God? 
Now, as we know, that Aaron's two sons had been turned into ashes when they challenged God and tried to take strange fire in. But obviously, Korah didn't learn that lesson. He didn't understand the holiness of God. He didn't understand that God was a God of order. And so he's challenging God's order. And Moses said, challenge it. But you're taking too much on yourself if you want to challenge God's order. Verse 8, And Moses said unto Korah, Here I pray you, sons of Levi, seemeth it but a small thing unto you that the God of Israel has separated you from the congregation of Israel to bring you near to himself to do the service of the tabernacle of the Lord and to stand before the congregation to minister unto them? I will tell you, I've dealt with a number of assemblies, and some of the worst battles are between the elders and the deacons because there's real jealousies and there's real feelings like the deacons want to be elders and they, and, they, and, they, and they don't like the role that the elders are playing. And I could tell you history time and again that that's occurred. But God has an order. And it's important that we understand that order. And he said, don't you realize that you're serving in an important capacity here? But you're not satisfied with that capacity. You want more. You want something God's never given you. And so you're not challenging me. You're challenging God and you're challenging God's order. Verse 10, and he hath brought thee near to him and all thy brethren, the sons of Levi with thee, and seek ye the priesthood also. There was no one else in the congregation that came and was able to handle and touch and move the holy things. But that wasn't enough. They wanted more. They wanted more. God had made them extremely special. The Levites didn't have to work. They didn't have to farm. They were supported as Levites. They were there to serve. And yet it wasn't enough. They wanted more. Verse 11, for which cause both thou and all thy company are gathered together against the Lord. And what is Aaron that you murmur against him? Now notice that they're murmuring against Aaron. They're murmuring against Moses. But who are they gathered against? They're gathered against the Lord. Because what they're attacking is not the Lord's servants. They're attacking the Lord's order. And it's really important for us to understand that. As you go through scripture, you'll see this again and again, that God places authority in place. And whether you agree with the authority or believe it's the right authority, God's order says they are the authority. And I could take you through examples through the scriptures. And you look at David, when David had a chance to kill Saul in the cave of Adullam. What does he say? I will not strike the Lord's anointed. When Paul spoke against the high priest and he was called into account for it, he says, I didn't realize he was a high priest because you will not speak against the Lord's high priest. But he recognized, even though by human rational thinking, that high priest was as corrupt as he could possibly be. There was no way you could recognize him as God's high priest, and yet... And so then when we come later in Romans, Paul, Paul would tell us that we are to obey the government 
because God has placed them exactly where he wants them to be. When Trevor was here a couple of weeks ago, he, he mentioned that from Daniel, that it was God who placed Israel into Nebuchadnezzar's hands. And it was God who put the nation of Israel under the control of Nebuchadnezzar. And David understood, I'm mean, Daniel understood that. And then Peter tells us that we're to honor kings. So when someone's in authority, that's God's order. And whether we disagree with them or not, we have a responsibility because when we rebel against God's order, we're rebelling against God. Because God, as we're going to see, as Moses sets here, he can rectify the situation. It's not up to me. It's not up to me. And so Moses doesn't take it in his own hands. Notice what Moses does here, verse 12. Uh, let's, all right, verse 12. And Moses said to call Dathan and, and Ebrahim, the sons of Eli, which he said, we will not come up. It is a small thing that thou hast brought us up out of the land that floweth milk and honey to kill us in the wilderness, except thou make thyself altogether a prince over us. Moreover, thou hast not brought us unto a land that floweth milk and honey, or given us inheritance of fields and vineyards. Wilt thou put out the eyes of these men? We will not come up. And Moses was very wroth and said, The Lord respect not thou their offering. I have not taken one ass from them, neither have I hurt one of them. So they're complaining about the fact that they never got to the promised land, but whose fault was that? It wasn't Moses's. Now let's go down to verse 31. Skip down a ways. And it came to pass as he made an end of speaking in these words, and the ground clave under sunder that was under them, and the earth opened her mouth and swallowed them up, and their houses, and all the men that appertained unto Korah, and all their goods. They and all that appertained to them went down alive in the pit, and the earth closed upon them, and they perished from among the congregation. And all Israel that was around about them fled at the cry of them, for they said, Lest the earth swallow us up also. And there came out fire from the Lord and consumed the 250 men that offered incense. Moses said, Let God determine whether you should be priests. And God did. Fire came out and they were turned to ashes. And so no Korah has this following, but not for very long, because God deals with them in judgment. And if you notice, there was no progress made while they were dealing with this criticism. The problem with criticism is that you can't make progress when you have to deal with criticism. And then verse 41, but on the morrow, all the congregation of the children of Israel murmured against Moses and against Aaron, saying, you have killed the people of the Lord. They blamed Moses for God's judgment. And it came to pass when the congregation was gathered against Moses and against Aaron, that they looked towards the tabernacle of the congregation. Behold, the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord appeared. And Moses and Aaron came before the tabernacle of the congregation. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Get you up from among this congregation, that I may consume them as in a moment. And they fell upon their faces. 
And Moses said unto Aaron, Take a censer and put fire therein from off the altar and put on incense and go quickly into the congregation and make an atonement for them. For there is wrath gone out from the Lord and plague has begun. And Aaron took on Moses' commanded and ran into the midst of the congregation. And behold, the plague was begun among the people. And he put on incense and he made an atonement for the people. And he stood between the dead and the living and the plague was stayed. Now they that died in the plague were 14,700 besides them that died about the matter of Korah. And Aaron returned unto Moses, unto, Aaron returned unto Moses under the door of the tabernacle of the congregation, and the plague was stayed. God took murmuring and criticism rather severely. Judgment was pretty instantaneous, and he took care of it. So let's talk about how we respond to criticism. We see how Moses responded to criticism. He was a meek and mild man. Some of us aren't quite so meek and mild. But it's still important that we handle criticism well. The first thing to decide is, is it true? Is it true? Because the Lord does bring people into our lives, such as David with Nathan with David, that there is truth in what they have to say. And so it's really important that we listen to the truth of what they have. Turn over to Matthew 7. We referred to this earlier. And sometimes it's not a lot of truth. Sometimes it's just a little bit of truth. But you still have to decide how much truth is there and how do I respond if there is truth? And we referred to this earlier, Matthew 7 and verse 3. And why beholdest thou the mote that is on thy brother's eye, but considereth not the beam that is in thine own eye? And how wilt thou say to thy brother, let me pull out the mote out of thine eye, and behold, the beam is on thine own eye? Thou hypocrite, first cast out the beam out of thy own eye, and then shalt thou see clearly to cast out the mote out of thy brother's eye. You might only have a mote in your eye or a splinter. And the brother who comes to criticize you has more issues than you can count. But somehow or other, he points out a fact that's true. And so should he ignore it because his brother has a beam in his eye? No, you need to make that decision. Is this true? Is this true? And then the second thing, over to Matthew 5, if you'll turn back. If it's true, then the first thing to do is make it right, is to make it right. When I was in Phoenix two weeks ago, we spoke on the sacrifices, and I finished up with the trespass offering. Well, one of the things to be noted in the trespass offering is that you had to bring a fifth part more. So you had to, if something was worth a dollar, you had to bring them a dollar twenty-five to make up for it, and so forth and so on because it was one part of the four, and one part would be a quarter, so it would be 125. And you had to take that to the offended party before you could bring your offering to the Lord. And if the offended party wasn't first made right, then your offering was of no value to God. And so when we come to this passage in the New Testament, this is exactly what this passage is addressing. 
in, in, verse, um, in chapter 5 and verse 23. Because it says, Therefore, if thou bring thy gift to the altar, and hast remembered thy brother has ought against thee, leave there thy gift before the altar, and go thy way first to be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. If you haven't been restored to your brother, and you haven't made it right with your brother, God's really not too interested in what you're bringing. And if you study the trespass offering very carefully, it's all about interpersonal relationships. And God's very interested in our interpersonal relationship. And he gives us a lot of guidelines on how to conduct those. And one is, if we're wrong, the brother, we need to make it right. And who knows who might come alongside of us and say, you wronged this brother, you need to go to that brother and make it right. Well, you have so many problems, I'm not, I need to listen to you. And that's not the way. So the first thing is if it's, if it's right, if, it, if you're wrong and it's warranted, make it right. And then the second, take it to the Lord if it's not true. If it's not true, take it to the Lord. First Samuel 30 and 6 says this, And David was greatly distressed for the people spake of stoning him because the soul of all the people were grieved, every man for his son, for his daughters. But David encouraged himself in the Lord his God. David's falsely accused here. And David was a man who was heavily criticized, if you read his life. And we're going to quote a couple of his psalms and look at some of the things he said about that. But he encouraged himself to the Lord. He went to the Lord, and he says, Lord, you know my heart. You know. And so we read things like, search my heart. I know when I've been criticized, one of the things that I've, I, one of the prayers that I like to do is this. It says, Lord, show me your, my heart, and Lord, show me yourself. Because it's only when I see him that I can see the blackness of my own heart. But it's in light of his glory that I can understand my own heart and where I'm at. And I think David was a man who did this. And then number three, when we're criticized, is seek to honor the Lord in your response. And we're going to look at Proverbs 28, 25. It says, He that is proud of heart stirreth up strife, but he that putteth his trust in the Lord shall be made fat or shall profit. Think about that. You ever tried to help a brother and he's so defensive you just can't fight through all those walls and all the defensive and you just finally give up because he just doesn't seem to want to get help? And sometimes it's not criticizing him. Sometimes it's just coming alongside of him and trying to help him. And, and we all have blind spots. And iron does sharpen iron. And there's times that we need to come alongside each other and help us and help see the blind spots. But that's when it's true. But here, here, David says to fight back and be defensive and defend yourself stirs up strife but the one who puts his trust in the Lord. So David put his trust in the Lord. Proverbs, or Psalms, Proverbs 28, 25, he, that is, uh, no, Psalms 18, 20. The Lord rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands, hath he recompensed me. Think about that. David clearly understood that his righteous standing before God, that he would be rewarded for that. So how you respond to criticism, you can, you can strife. One of the things that I like to do before I become involved or in 
roiled into a contested situation is to go, to go to Galatians and read the fruit of the Spirit and read the works of the flesh and say, what is going to be produced if I do this? If I go to that brother and point this out, what's going to be the result? And if it's going to be strife and hard feelings and it's not going to go anywhere and it's not going to, then you know what? It's time to pray some more. It's time to pray for God to soften that person's heart. It's time to wait upon the Lord to act. Maybe the Lord will show it to someone who he'd take it better from. And I have to realize that, you know, God didn't place me here to go around correcting everybody. Psalms 37 and 7. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not thyself because of him who prospereth in his way, because of the man who bringeth wicked devices to pass. So sometimes we go, well... I'm under all this criticism, this person isn't, and he's succeeding and everybody's looking down on me. I need to do something about that. I need to defend myself. I need to do something. And he says, don't fret about the person who seems to be advancing. And sometimes they're advancing because of their criticism of you. He says, don't fret because they seem to be prospering because of their criticism of you. No, don't fret. Because God will be their judge, and, 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 and he brings those who have wicked devices to pass. And then don't become defensive and don't get mad. That's not always an easy one, especially if the criticism hits close to home, especially if the criticism involves your family or someone you love. It's hard to keep your cool when, when, when those you love are being hurt or criticized. But James says, for the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. And i got to remind myself on that on a regular basis, that when I get mad, nothing good happens. Sometimes we like to think it's righteous anger. There's not too many times where the wrath of man is righteous anger. Because if it was really righteous anger, I would trust God to deal with it. And I would trust God to, to take care of the issue, which we'll get to. And then one of the things that when you're dealing with criticism is whose reputation are you most concerned about? I know the Lord spoke to me highly about this when I was president of the camp board for several years because I came under a lot of criticism. And I'd hear it from all sorts of sources. And I, it would bother me a great deal. And I just went, wow. And, I, and most of the time it was unjust. I'm sure sometimes it was just, but most of the time it was unjust. And the Lord spoke to me and he says, well, whose name are you more concerned about? Because Colossians tells us that he might have the preeminence. And it, driving home late at night, because a lot of times the board meetings got over 11, and it's a two-hour ride back to San Diego, and the Lord just spoke to me and said, you know what? Be less concerned about your name and be more concerned about my name. Your response will either bring glory to me or it will, or it will <laughs> bring the wrath of God and, and the works of the flesh. And he said to me, you know what? Besides that, you're pretty powerless to protect your name. And I have to admit that because I was doing a lousy job of it. He says, you know, if you'll leave that to me, I'll do the protection. I'll take care of that. And it was like a burden lifted off your shoulders because then you don't have to respond to every little criticism. You don't have to respond to every piece of gossip. You don't have to respond to every piece of criticism that comes along. 
because you're going to trust God to deal with it. And you're going to trust him that he's going to take care of it. Psalms 35 and 5 says, Plead my cause, O Lord, and with them that strive with me, fight against them that fight against me. Are you willing to let God take on your fight and leave it to him to take on that fight? And then another point, suffering will come to those who live godly lives to expect criticism. I hate to tell you that, but we live in a day and age where suffering is 2 Timothy 3.12, Yea, and all they that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. You're, you're going to suffer. You're going to come under criticism. But Paul will later write to the Philippians and to the Thessalonians that they should rejoice because the fact that they're suffering is proof of their salvation. If you weren't suffering, it probably means you're not doing anything right. If you're a man pleaser, you're not going to suffer too much. But if you're really trying to honor God, as we saw in the example of Moses, you'd see in the example of David, you'd see in the example of Nehemiah, is that they, come un and they came under great criticism because they were trying to do the right thing. Philippians 1.28 says, not frightening anything for your opponents this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation. And that from God. If you let God take up the fight, he will do a much better job. And you just realize that it's an opportunity to suffer for Christ. Not easy. I won't tell you I have this perfected. And last, I think it's Christ-like to handle criticism well for a number of reasons, but one of those is because of fruit of the Spirit. And the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. And every time I'm criticized, this is one of the verses I read, okay, how do I respond in love? How do I maintain joy? How do I keep peace? Am I being patient? Am I being kind in my response? Am I in self-control? Am I willing to suffer? You know, patience here has the idea of patient suffering. We're living in a day and age and we're living in a time where most people really don't want to suffer. I'm not big on suffering. I'll, I'll readily agree. I'll readily admit that. I don't like to suffer criticism. I don't like, I was going to tell a joke, but it probably would hit too close to home. But you know, when you're done speaking and you walk down, someone comes up and goes, oh, you missed these two points. And you say, oh, that's my Jabe Nicholson special. And they go, what, what's, what's that mean? And go, well, that's my hour and 45 message. I couldn't get it in the half hour you gave me today, or I couldn't get it in the 40 minutes that you gave me today. And there are some places you, I go where they give you half an hour, and I'll tell you, it's a challenge for me to do anything in half an hour. But if you give me five minutes, I'll give you five minutes. I'll give you the best five minutes that I think the Lord's laid on my heart. And I'll give you the best half hour, but I do appreciate when we come here. And then we'll close with First Timothy two, or First Peter 2, which I think is a passage that I'm counseling a young married couple in, in marriage right now, and I'll tell you, went through this 
passage, and one of the comments was, well, that makes me a doormat. And I said, you know what? I'd be, rather be a doormat for God than anything else. Verse 19, for this is thankworthy if a man for conscience towards God endure grief, suffering wrongfully. You know, if you're being criticized and it's wrong, God actually makes note of that. And God considers that to be thankworthy, that you're suffering wrongfully. I, I, I have to remind myself of that when I suffer wrongfully, or at least in my opinion, I'm suffering wrongfully that God actually thinks that's a good thing. I might not, and it might not be easy, and I've spent a few sleepless nights when I think I'm suffering wrongfully, but God actually makes it thankworthy or noteworthy. For verse 20, for what glory is it when ye be buffeted for your faults, you take it patiently. Boy, I wish I could take it patiently when I'm buffeted for my faults, but I have just as much problem probably being patient when I'm buffeted for my wrongdoing. But think about that. But if, when you do well and suffer for it, you take it patiently, this is acceptable to God. Taking false criticism well is acceptable to God. Think about that. And then, here's the example, verse 21. For even hereunto were ye called... Because Christ has also suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow in his footsteps. But one of the reasons suffering wrongfully is acceptable to God because the Lord Jesus suffered wrongfully. And we're to follow in those footsteps. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. Absolute perfection, but he suffered wrongfully. Who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judges righteously. I will tell you, it's not easy. But to not be defensive, not to respond in kind, and to place your trust in the Lord that he, that he will judge you and he will judge those who are criticizing you righteously. It's easy to talk about trust in the Lord. It's often harder to work it out in practicality. But if you respond wrongfully to criticism, you really are not trusting in the Lord to judge righteously. You're really not trusting in the Lord to protect you and yours. Who his own self by our sins and his own body on the tree that we being dead to sin should live unto righteousness. Boy, it'd be great to be dead to sins. I can't wait till we're in heaven and we don't have to deal with sin at all because I'll tell you it's a struggle. It's an everyday, every moment struggle not to respond in the flesh when someone comes up and says something to you which you just know is wrong and is personal and is hurtful. 
and then to respond properly is a mark that you're a spiritual person. For, we, for you were a sheep gone astray and now are returned unto the shepherd and bishop of your soul. May you be encouraged next time you're criticized as to how God views criticism and how we should handle it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for your word. Father, we thank you for your examples to us in the scriptures. Father, we are so hurtful to each other and our interpersonal relationships fail on so many levels. But Father, we would pray that we would trust in your goodness, that we would trust that you judge righteously. And we would not be so quick to defend ourselves or so quick to answer when falsely accused or criticized in a, in a, in a manner which we don't believe is right. And that, Father, we might remember the Lord Jesus and his example, that when he was reviled, he reviled not again. So that, Father, we might be like your son. We'd ask that you would teach us, that you would spiritually mature us, that we, you, through your grace, would complete the work that you've begun in us so that, Father, we might bring honor and glory in all that we do to the name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.